Well, good morning. I would invite you to take your Bibles now, and you can open them now to Proverbs 27. We have jumped ahead in uh, Proverbs. This is your first Sunday here. We are just spending the summer of wisdom looking at the Proverbs and just unpacking them together. I would like to say Happy Father's Day to all the fathers there that are here today. And uh, I'm glad for our Heavenly Father, who's perfect, right? He's an excellent Heavenly Father. And I think of that on Father's Day, how wonderful it is to serve our Father. But we are looking this morning in Proverbs chapter 27, looking at verses 19 through 27. And before we begin, I'd just like to open our time in a word of prayer. Let's pray together. Father, I thank you now that we just worshiped and sung of your love and redemption. And now as we engage your word, I pray that it would wash over us, cleanse our hearts, just unite us to you. And Lord, may we just come out of here satisfied knowing that we have been with you and have heard from you and have been changed by you. And I pray this in Christ's name. Amen. You ever heard of this particular career field, an image consultant? Ever heard of an image consultant? I uh, recently had read of a person who uh, uh, committed a high-profile crime. And uh, they knew that this was going to be on court TV, so they hired an image consultant before they hired their, their full-time attorney because they wanted to make sure that they looked good on their way to prison for life. You know, they wanted an image consultant. Image consultants are, are actually a pretty big business. If you don't know what an image consultant is, I am going to tell you what an image consultant is. This I'm going to read to you from the Association of Image Consultants International website, what they say about image consultants, just so that you know what an image consultant is. Here's an image consultant. Do you recognize room... By the way, this is a sales pitch. Okay. Do you recognize room for improvement in your appearance, communication, or behavior? Have you decided to upgrade your image but are wondering how to proceed? Are your employees not living up to your expectations with regard to their degrees of professionalism? Here is how an image consultant can help you. Okay. As an independent professional, an image consultant guides you in presenting yourself to your best advantage and expressing your highest potential. Whether you're an individual or a corporation, an image consultant can teach you how to polish your image in three areas. Your physical appearance, grooming, hair, makeup, color, wardrobe, personal shopping. Kind of cool, personal shopping. I need that. <laughs> I have that. My wife, sorry. <laughs> sorry, Heather. Yeah. She does help me, right? I'd be lost. I'd be up here in sweatpants and a T-shirt if it wasn't for her. Okay. Your behavior. They will help you in your behavior. Personality, stress management, etiquette, and protocol. And your communication skills. They help you with diction, body language, relationship building, and conflict resolution. See, that's what an image consultant can do. They can help you polish your image. Now, in this culture, image is everything, isn't it? 
We've actually made a switch, I think, in, in the past several hundred years, where, where we, we don't really look at the character of a person anymore. It's almost irrelevant. What we want to look at is their image. Right? That, that's really the uh, assessment of everything. How someone looks, how someone appears. Not necessarily what's really going on in their heart, but how they appear. Image is a huge part because we've made a shift from character to image. And image really does rule our day. It really does. That's why we airbrush pictures of people, of models and stuff on the magazines. They've got to look perfect. They've got to look perfect. They've got to speak perfect. They've got to act perfect. Image is a huge part of our world. In fact, I think about how dominant image is and the pressure that it puts on young people. You think about the pressure of our image culture on young girls and a lot of the emotional issues that they can face in life because they don't like the way they look or they don't like the way they talk or they don't like their hair or they don't, you know, some feature of something that is so really in one sense irrelevant. But yet in our culture, it is the most relevant thing. And you could have somebody who's an incredible young woman, but yet she, I don't like my hair. And so that defines her. And what happens? She takes the burden of image on her. And then that burden of image absolutely just weighs them down. And all kinds of emotional issues emerge. It happens with young men as well. I recall years and years and years ago with uh, being involved by being discipled by some guys and they, they would talk about, you know, we only disciple guys who have the package. You know, we only want guys in ministry who have the package. And they would talk about this thing called the package. And the package was the way they talked, the way they looked, the way they looked in a suit, everything. It was like the whole package. They had to have it. And if you had the package, you could be in ministry. And you had to be able to live up to that package. And guys were striving and putting stress on themselves to try to live up to a certain personality type and a certain, you know, aggressiveness and skill set and communication set. And they, and they lived under the burden trying to rise up to the package. Why? Because we look at image. All of that is very shallow, isn't it? Isn't it shallow? I mean, it's so completely shallow, but it is what our world pressures, it puts pressure upon us to, to live for. The issue in life is character. Image is fleeting, and image only creates more heartache and headache, and, and the issue of life is really character. This passage we're looking at today is a passage about character. That's really what it's about. It's about kind of tearing aside all of this image stuff and looking at who you really are. And then, in one sense, in an instructive sort of way, helping us understand what our focus should be on in certain key areas of life so that we would actually be people of character and, and shun the shallowness of image. Shun it completely. And we're going to look at this today, and we're going to gain some right perspectives. You see in your, your outline there, I'm going to write perspective on a few areas of life. Write perspective on your heart, on your desires, on character itself, on foolishness, folly, and on work. And what, what, what this passage is going to do is say, okay, what would happen if we looked at those areas of life through the lens of character rather than through the lens of image, through the, the external, the shallow stuff? 
And what would happen if we, if we didn't hire an image consultant, but we brought ourselves before the face of God and said, God, work on my character? What would happen? Make me a man or a woman of character, godly character, righteous character. What would happen if we did that? Well, that's really where this passage will lead us through. And, and what I hope that it does, in one sense, is it challenges us to, to start looking at our character. And maybe what I hope it does, too, is free us from the shallowness and the emptiness of image and to actually start being people of character. So let's look at this. Let's look at these right perspectives here. Okay, let's look at the first one, the right perspective on your heart. Look at verse 19. As in water, face reflects face, so the heart of man reflects the man. That's really not that hard to understand, is it? Right? You look at water, you get a reflection of yourself. What, who are you for real? He says, who you are for real is predicated on your heart. On your heart. It's not predicated on other people. It's not predicated on your image. It's predicated on your heart. And if you take a look inside your heart, that's who you really are. Now, I want to illustrate this for you, and then I'll explain it to you, just so you can understand what he's saying here. Because we can accept this as a premise, but our, our flesh kind of fights against this, this proverb. And I'm going to show you how. It's a pretty, pretty simple way you, you can see this. I want you to picture two kids, two 10-year-old kids. They're playing at uh, one of the kids' house. Two, you know, kid invites his friend over, and they're playing. And, and the, the, the kid whose house it is, he says to his friend, Hey, I got an idea. Why don't we... Go to my mom's purse, steal $10 out of it, and go to the store and buy some candy. The friend goes, uh, I don't know. I don't think that's a good idea. The kid whose house it is says, no, it's no big deal. I do it all the time. I don't know if I should do it. No, come on, come on, come on, let's do it. Okay. And they go in and steal the money. So now they're in the purse, digging around, trying to find the money. And uh, the mom walks in, catches them. Now they're in trouble, right? So the mom scolds her son. She sends the friend home, but of course does what a good mom would do, calls the other mom. Hey, listen, I'm sending your son home because he was uh, stealing money out of my purse. Okay, so the kid walking home knowing he's going to face the wrath of his mom, and he walks in the door. This is rhetorical, so you don't have to answer it out loud. What's the first thing he's going to say to his mom? It's not my fault. Right? right? It's not my fault. I didn't want to do it. He made me do it. I actually said no. Right? That's how the story happened. Is that accurate? That is totally accurate. It's not my fault. It's totally not my fault. He made me do it. Okay. Is he right? Is he right? The facts are correct in one sense. This, the, the friend did say, let's steal. The kid did say no at first, but he went and did it anyways. Is he right? Well, in one sense, he's 50% right. That's kind of how the story went. But in another sense, he's wrong. Because if we could peer into his heart, what we would see is this. He fears man over fearing God. Right? He would rather be a friend of sinners than a friend of God. 
right? Really, if you want to look at his heart, he did not have the courage to do what was right because he loved the approval of men. So, my child comes home and says this, that would be my response. You don't think it's your fault, and if you go through life never looking at your heart, never piercing into the depths of your heart, always making excuses and saying, my actions are a reflection of everyone else around me, right? Who I am is based upon the fact that Mike led me astray. I'm really a good person. It was his fault, right? That'd be easy to do, wouldn't it? Well, not with Mike, but (laughs) Mike never led me astray. But it's easy to blame other people than to say, you know what, mom? I mean, of course, if a 10-year-old boy said this, I think you'd think the rapture's coming, right? If he said, you know what, Mom? I was a friend of sinner rather than a friend of God. I was wrong. My heart is wrong. You see, it's so easy to think that who you are is predicated upon the sinfulness of everyone around you when the reality is this, that if you look at your heart, you followed. You followed. You went after that. You were attracted to that. You see, water reflects the face. The heart tells you who you really are. That's the issue of this problem. What is the heart then? Let me just make it simple. Heart's a term that's used throughout the Bible. It is, we'll define the heart simply for you. It is that part of you that motivates and drives you. That's what it is. It's that part that motivates and drives you. It's that thing inside of you that calls inside of you to say, I'll be embarrassed if I stand up against them. I don't have the courage to say they're wrong. I'm afraid they'll come after me. That thing inside of you that's, that's making that decision is your heart. When the Bible refers to your heart, what it's referring to is the thing inside of you that makes the decisions, what it trusts in, what it follows in, what it clings to, what it lives for. What you live for, what you trust in, what you desire in life, what motivates you, that's all your heart. Now, the heart is, de- is really deceitful and wicked. Isn't that what the Bible says? Right? That's, why, that's why you could stand there and say, it's not my fault. He made me do it. I highly doubt he pulled out a gun and put it to your head and said, I'm going to blow your head off unless you steal the $10 out of the purse. Right? I highly doubt he made... I have a feeling he just was coercing you. Come on, come on, come on. And you didn't have the courage. And your heart right now does not have the courage to do what's right. That's the issue here. You want to please men over pleasing God. There's your heart. Okay, that's what's motivating you. Now, all of us have that heart. All of us, that kind of story is true. All of us have pointed the finger. All of us says, it's not my fault. It's their fault. I wouldn't be in this situation if it wasn't for them. I wouldn't be here if it wasn't for them. All of us have that. We have that in our resume. Right? I mean, if I start listing all of your faults, your flesh's first response is to say, that wasn't my fault. Right? That's all in all of our resume. So where is the hope? This proverb comes along and exposes something very deep, and you go, ouch. So where's the hope? Well, Ezekiel, the prophet, was prophesying the work of the Messiah, and he wanted to give us some hope. Here's the hope he gives. Listen to Ezekiel 36, 
verses 25 through 29. This passage should mean a lot to you after you really understand a proverb like this. Listen to what it says. I will sprinkle clean water on you, and you shall be clean from all your uncleanliness. From all your idols I will cleanse you, and I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. Not using flesh in the negative sense. Saying you had that hard heart that blamed everyone. Now I'll give you a heart that's alive is what he's saying. And I'll put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. Do you see the connection between the heart and and obedience now? You get this new heart. You get this new motivation. You have the very spirit of God causes you to walk in my statutes to be careful to obey my rules. You shall dwell in the land that I give to your fathers. You shall be my people, and I will be your God, and I will deliver you from all your uncleanliness. And I will summon the grain and make it abundant and lay no famine upon you. There won't be consequences now. I won't have those kind of consequences we used to have because your heart was so hard, is what he's saying. He's saying now you have the Spirit of God inside of you. You have this, this, this conscience that's yelling, and, and, he, and, and it, later, if you were to just kind of follow this thread through into the New Testament, you'd you'd hear the Apostle Paul saying, listen to that voice. Don't harden your voice. That's the Spirit of God. When it says, walk away from your friend right now, walk away. Listen to it. You now have life. You can do it. If you're in Christ, there's the gospel. If you're in Christ. So, we want to be a person of character. First thing we've got to be looking at is our own heart. What is the motivation that drives you? And if you say, my only motivation is myself, then say, God, man, I need what Ezekiel 36 is talking about. I need that new heart. I need that new heart. I need that spirit that will push me, give me desire to obey, be a person of character. Let's look at the second perspective we need to have. We're going to be a person of character. We need a right perspective on our desires. Right perspective on our desires. Look at verse 20. Shield and abandon are never satisfied. And never satisfied are the eyes of man. Those two words there in verse 20 just mean death and hell. You could say, translate it this way. Death and hell are never satisfied. It's just a, it's a graphic statement to say, you know, people are always dying. There's always death. And just as there's always death in the world, it's the same thing with your heart. You are a slave to your own desires, selfish, sinful desires. What does that mean to be a slave to your selfish, sinful desires? I, uh, I read an article about the relationship between depression and debt. Depression and debt. That when people get depressed, they spend They look to materialism to make them happy. And with the internet and online buying and stores having your credit card number, so all you got to do is hit click, enter, 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 right? And and you can keep buying things. People are just going crazy into consumer debt because they're depressed and they're not satisfied in life and they think if I can just get this new thing, it'll make me happy. And you you can give them as many new things as possible Right? You, could, you can give them all the new electronics on the planet today, and they're outdated as soon as they unbox them. Right? And they now need another one, and another one, and another, right? on and on and on it goes. 
And he's saying, this is what's going to happen. You see, human desires are never satisfied. And here's the reality. It brings no happiness. It brings no real lasting joy. It just puts you into further, further, further spiraling down of problems. Because you never get to the point where you go, wow, I'm satisfied. I have enough. I have everything I need. It's totally true. I've shared this story with you many times. I, I can recall as a kid thinking all I ever wanted was an A-frame house with windows overlooking the mountains, and, and if I could have that, I would be happy. I remember thinking that as in high school. And then the Lord like, allowed me to live in Alaska in an A-frame house with windows overlooking the mountains. And I remember sitting out on the deck, and there was this kind of this uh, waterway in front of us, and I heard this boat going by, and I thought, wow, wouldn't it be cool if I had a yacht? <laughs> you know? It'd be so cool if I had a yacht, you know? <laughs> like, I'd love to be on a yacht right now, right? You, you're just never satisfied. Because God did not design this world to satisfy you. In fact, we learn in Romans chapter 8, that he, 821, that God removed all of the satisfaction out of the world. He actually subjected it to folly, which means meaninglessness, which means a new computer, the best clothes, the best car, the best this, the best that. God actually says, I will not allow it to satisfy you. You will never be happy with it. There's only one place we can find our satisfaction. I think of David. David was told he was going to be king. He's serving in Saul's courts. And then, of course, Saul goes, you know, wacky on him, tries to kill him. And, and of course, it was a horrible life David had for quite a while. And picture being a young guy. Picture being 25 years old. And the king of a nation hates your guts. He's trying to kill you. And he unleashes his entire army to come kill you. Picture that. If you're 25 years old. I mean, that's a problem. That's a huge problem, isn't it, right? You've got hundreds of skilled troops and an entire nation coming upon you to kill you. And the only people that are your friends are the criminals. I mean, like David has to sleep with one eye open because he doesn't even know if his posse's going to kill him. This is a big problem. You, you're told by God you're going to be king, and yet... The reality is the king that's serving wants to kill you, and he's got his army after you, and you're hanging out with a bunch of guys who, who are bad. And, and then there's a moment when, when remember when, when uh, Saul's son says, hey, David, you've got to get out of here, man. My dad is like, really hates you. Go. And he takes off on the run, and he goes off into this cave in the wilderness, and there's no food and no water, and his men are starving. So now... He's got the entire Israeli army pressing down upon him. He's out in the wilderness where there's no food and no possibility of getting any food. He's sitting in a cave up in the middle of the night, and he writes a song. He writes a song, and that song is Psalm 63. Listen to this song. You know, it's a convicting song because, like, you know, if, if my brakes go out of my car, my songs are like, oh, God, why are you doing this to me? Right? So, like, <laughs> picture David in this predicament. Here's the song he writes. Psalm 63. Oh, God, you are my God. 
earnestly I seek you. My soul thirsts for you. My flesh faints for you as in a dry and weary land where there is no water, which is exactly where he was. So I've looked upon you in my sanctuary, behold, in, in, in the sanctuary, behold, beholding your power and glory because your steadfast love is better than life. My lips will praise you. So I will bless you as long as I live. In your name, I will lift up my hand. My soul will be satisfied as with the fat and rich food, and my mouth will praise you with joyful lips. I'm satisfied in you and you alone, God. It's the same thing. I'm starving right now. I'm in this cave. And we know he's starving because right after this incident, he goes into the temple and lies to steal some bread. This is how hungry he is. But he's like, I'm satisfied. I might be starving. I might be so starving, I'm going to go in the temple and get some bread from the priest. But I'm satisfied. I need nothing because I've seen God. And he's everything to me. You see, God removed the meaning from this world so that we'd only find our meaning in him. That's it. It's the only place. And when you're in that state of worship with God, an entire army can come after you and try to kill you. You could be left with nothing in a cave and be satisfied. Not sitting around going, boy, wouldn't it be great when I'm king? When I'm king, I'll never chase down people. You know, if I had the throne, I'd use the army for good, not for bad. Right? He's not doing that. He's, I'm just satisfied with you, God. I need nothing. You know, being with you is like eating a steak. That's what he says. That's what being with you is like. It's, it's incredible. Okay. You see, here's the point. He's not connecting his status in life to his situation in life. He's not connecting the state of his soul to the state of his environment. His soul is connected to God. Being a person of character means we have a right perspective. We don't say, if I get more and more and more and more and more in life, then I'll be happy, or if this could get fixed, that to be a person of character says, I'm going to just say, God, be satisfied in you. Let's look at the next one. A right perspective on character itself. Let's look at a right perspective on character itself. Look at verse 21. This one's a complicated verse. There's two ways you can interpret it here. It says, The crucible is for silver, and the furnace is for gold, and a man is tested by his praise. Okay, so basically the picture, you know, the picture you got silver and gold. We know that you know, they would put silver and gold in a furnace to burn off all the dross, and what's left is the pure silver and gold. So he's saying like there's certain furnace, there's certain pressures in life that come upon people to tell us who they really are. To tell us who the character is. When the pressure is on, what comes out? Now, he, this is reference, a man is tested by his praise. There are two ways you can interpret this. And I flip-flop back and forth as to which one. They both end up at the same place. So I'll give you both of them and, and then you know, maybe you can help me understand it better. The two, uh, two approaches are this. One is that uh, the testing for a human is what they praise. That's one way you can interpret it. Like, what is it that you find joy in? What is it that you laugh about? What is it that, 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 that you would say, this is fun, or this is cool, or, or this movie's really great? Or that, that will reflect who you are. That's one way you can interpret that. 
And so the crucible of life for you is what you praise. That's one way to look at that verse. And you could actually do that grammatically. What is it that you find your joy in, that you find your love in, that you find your happiness in? Those types of things. Another way you can look at this grammatically, and this would be accurate as well, is that a man is tested by his praise, meaning the test of our man is what people ultimately say about you, what they celebrate in you. So it's kind of one of those things that if you walk into a room and everybody goes, oh, okay, well, that's probably not good, right? <laughs> and when you walk out of a room and everybody goes, yeah, that's not good. And so the test is, how do people react to you as a human being? Not to what you can give them financially or not to what, but, but whether or not just strip away all the other things you can do, when they just think of you as a person, what do they say about you? That's the crucible. Okay? So either way, what you're talking about is revealing this praise component. Either what you praise or what people say about you. I remember as a kid, my dad had this, has this desk in their basement and uh, like big old roll-top desks from the 20s. And, and, uh, and I was kind of flipping through it one day, just looking at stuff, and I found this little notebook. And it was a notebook that he had from World War II when he's out on the Solomon Islands. He was a CB in World War II. And so he, you know, went through and built those air bases along all along those islands down in the South Pacific. And, and uh, after the war, when he was coming back, he had some of his friends write notes to him in a little notebook. And I remember flipping through the notebook and every single thing that his friend said was all positive about his character. My dad wasn't a Christian but at that point, but, but he was saying, you know, they were just saying things like, man, you, you're a good friend and you put your life on the line for me and you cared for me and you did this for me. And they were just writing all these things that you did. And I remember reading that thinking, that is so cool that my dad was that respected. You know, just dozens and dozens of guys just saying, you saved me. You made a difference in my life. And I remember reading that thing. That is just so cool. And I think that is one way you could look at this. Do, what do people ultimately say? Or what do you ultimately say? That's either way. But the point is this. Your character is ultimately seen. Whether you're revealing it or not, people see who you really are. So you can paint an image. You can paint an image. You can walk in and pretend like you're the happiest, nicest person in the world, but the reality is we can see through it, right? We can see through it. You can see through a disingenuous person. You can see through it. So the issue of character is this. You, and here's the point I want you to get. You can't hide your character. If you want to have a right perspective on character, you can't hide who you really are. It will leak out. People will see it, or it will come out of you. Let's move on. Now we need a right perspective on folly. We've seen our heart, seen our desires, seen our character. Let's look on and see folly. Right perspective on foolishness. You think, well, what kind of right, what's a wrong perspective on foolishness? Like, foolishness is cool? Well, actually, there is a wrong perspective on foolishness. Okay, and, and I'll tell you what the wrong perspective is before I read the verse. The wrong perspective on foolishness is this. It's no big deal. It might be wrong, but it's no big deal. Now, let me read this to you, and then I'll, then I'll tell you how that wrong perspective gets shown. Look at verse 22. 
crush a fool in a mortar with a pestle, (laughs) that's graphic, along with crushed grain, yet his folly will not depart from him. Okay, you know what a pestle and a mortar is, right? The little bowl and the little thing. (laughs) I don't know what the synonym is for it. Pestle, right? You just, you put it in there and you just smash it and smash it and smash it, right? That's how you used to crush little herbs and grain and things like that when you make a small amount. He's saying, now you could take your grain, you could put it in this thing, and then you could put a fool in there. And you could just smash the daylights out of that fool. And you know what? You might just completely smash them, but you know what will be embedded in every fiber of their smashed being will be foolishness. You can't get it out. You cannot get it out. I've shared this with you, but I, we went camping one time as a kid. I ran off, didn't want to set up, so I ran off into the woods to go uh, play while they were setting up the campsite, and I ran right up to a skunk and kicked it. <laughs> you know the end of that story, don't you? <laughs> you know where that story's going. Oh, my word. Oh, I was puking. Seriously, it was horrible. I came back. My family was like, what is happening? You can't get that smell out. You can't. There's nothing you can do. When you get it on your skin, it is on your skin. And the worst part of that vacation, this is a side note, this is a little whatever therapy session for me. The worst part of that vacation was every vacation my dad said, we go to church. Right? My dad, I am not going to church. I smell like a skunk. We go to church. <laughs> you know? I remember sitting in the Sunday school classroom and the kids are like, whoa, like, I'm sorry. My, my dad made me go to church. This is horrible. I smell like a skunk. Right? That smell does not leave. The point of that story is if you treat folly like it's no big deal, you're kicking the skunk. Folly will attach if you kind of say, oh, it's no big deal, it's just fun. It's no big deal, it's just them. It's no big deal, I'm a Christian, I can handle it. If you enter into that world and the foolishness of people who live as if there is no God and people who live as if there's no right way, that will attach itself onto you, and this proverb is saying, and it will never leave. You will be a fool. This is what he's saying. This is why there are some people who can go through problem after problem after problem, and you kind of think, man, at some point, you're going to learn your lesson to quit doing that. You say, why haven't they learned their lesson, right? Have you felt that way? You've had that. But you think, man, at some point, you'd learn. And this proverb would say, you know what? It's because they embraced folly as if it was no big deal, and now folly owns them. And they went from hanging out with fools to becoming a fool, and they didn't know when that transition happened, and it owns them. We raise our children. This is why sometimes they say, you know what? I don't really want you watching that show. But, Dad, it's no big deal. Yeah, it might not be a big deal, but they're fools. And if you start hanging out with fools, you become a fool. I don't yell it that way. Sorry. That was a sermon moment. That wasn't a parenting moment. <laughs> right? It's, it, that's the reason why, though. That's why you make those decisions. You see, the reality is we've got to have a, a wise perspective that folly is a skunk. And when you hang with folly, you might as well just kick a skunk every day because it'll attach itself onto you and you will never get rid of it. 
Folly is basically defined this way. Living life as if God doesn't matter. There's your, your kind of person. Living life as if God doesn't matter. You guys say, it's no big deal. I'll do that. God really doesn't matter there. You hang there, and that takes ownership on you. It will never leave, is what he's saying. So you need the right perspective on folly. We need one more perspective here. Okay, we've seen some de- our hearts, our desires, our character, our folly. One more perspective, and then we'll wrap it all up. We need a right perspective on work. We're going to be a person of character. Just read through this section here, 23 through 27. Know well, that the condi- know well the condition of your flocks and give attention to your herds, for riches do not last forever. And does a crown endure to all generations? When the grass is gone and the new growth appears and the vegetation of the mountains is gathered, the lambs will provide your clothing and the goats the price of a field. There will be enough goats for milk for your food, for the food of your household, and the maintenance of your girls. Now, you probably read that and go, what in the world is he talking about? Well, there's two perspectives, two things he's going on here. First, he's saying you've got to know the condition of your flocks. Now, that day, people took care of animals. You've got to be aware of your animals. Here's the reason why. Verse 24, because money doesn't last forever. Now, the reality of life is this. We think that money and cash and and all the stuff that wealth brings is what we should be living for. And so sometimes people start living for that wealth. They start living for whatever. Maybe, you know, let's put it in our context here, right? Our context might be this. Uh, Let's say you get a tax refund. Oh, I can't wait. I'm going to get a tax refund. You know what we're going to do? We're going to buy a new TV, and then we're going to do this, and we're going to do this, and I'm going to spend all this money. Blah, blah, blah. And all of a sudden, whoa, I've run out of money. Oh, yeah, an uncle dies. Guess what? We got $10,000 inheritance. Great. You know what we're going to do? We're going to buy a new car with this. Right? We're going to... And this is how people live their life. It actually becomes the rhythm of their life, waiting for the next windfall to spend the next money. And then what happens is they work themselves into such a problem that the very work that God has given them to do, to be a faithful steward of, they don't do. They end up in all kinds of messes. And they end up working themselves into all kinds of problems. And in our culture, the way it would look might be that they end up in such financial straits that they take on a second job and then they don't do either job well because they're tired all the time. Then they start getting sick. They start taking six days. And on and on. And all of a sudden, their life just kind of whoo, falls apart. Why? Because they were living for money. Here's what he's saying. God has given you what he's given you. Be a faithful steward of what he's given you. If you have a job, be a faithful steward of that job because that job is the job through which he wants to provide for you. That's the job he wants to provide for you. And so you live your life based upon the milk and the meat that comes from the flock that he's given to you. So in that day, if he's given you five sheep, then take care of those five sheep. Be faithful with those five sheep. Work the fields with those five sheep because those five sheep will be enough to provide for your family is what he's saying. The problem in life comes in when we want more than what God has provided. And then we start pushing what he's provided and then all of a sudden we're not faithful with it. When he says there'll be enough goat's milk for your food and all these kind of things, what he's basically saying is he's saying God has given you everything you need. Be faithful with what he's given you. 
That's the perspective on work that gets lost in our kind of type A culture. I want more, I want more, I need more, I need more, I want more, right? We keep pushing it because we want more wealth, we want more riches, because we want to take those riches and buy more things and get better, better, whatever it is you want to get better. And on and on it goes, the cycle. And he's saying, no, 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 no. Stop and say, this is what he's provided. Be faithful with it. Be faithful with it because what God has provided will be enough to care for you in the way he wants to care for you. Be satisfied that God has given you what he wants. Be satisfied. Hard to think that way because our flesh is never satisfied, right? The flesh is never satisfied. So the right perspective on work is he's saying, listen, be faithful with it. And God will provide. That's a perspective that is lost in our age. This perspective that's lost on a lot of people. They're not faithful with the jobs they've given. They're dissatisfied because their flesh wants more than what God has given. And they stop being faithful with what he's given and the problems hit. Okay, so here's the point. Let's, let's wrap this up. We've seen these, these issues of character. And, and my challenge for us is to, to say, okay, what happens if we strip away a life of image, living for image, and living for character? Well, what that means is that we're going to have to see some things here. Let me kind of sum up to you five things here. The first is this, that the real driving force in our lives is our heart. We want to start there. Not making excuses, not blaming other people, right? Not saying, I wouldn't do it if they had done that, da 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 I'm going to look at me. Not your fault. I'm going to look at me. Second, remembering our desires will never be satisfied. Your fleshly desires cannot be satisfied. I literally could give you everything that your flesh wants today, and tomorrow you would feel absolutely meaningless. I watched the uh, Stanley Cup last game. The guy scores the goal, right? And uh, you see this moment when he's jumping around. Whoa, he throws his gloves in the air. You know, he's, he's, just, he's just excited about this. And then it's over. And, uh, and I said to Heather, you know, Heather, he's been training for 25 years for that moment. And it's over. <laughs> it's over. He had 42 seconds of woo. And now he's standing there with microphones in his face. How did it feel? Uh, felt great. How did it feel? Felt great. How did it feel? Felt great. How did it feel? Felt great. That's it. It's over. Now what? He'll never have that moment again. See? You can live for something like that your whole life, and it'll be over. Your soul cannot be satisfied with the stuff of successes of this world. Our desires will never be satisfied. Number three, our character is to be measured by one of two things, based on how you interpret that verse, by what others say or what we celebrate. I mean, what others really believe, what, what, what they really see as they look past the image we try to portray. Fourthly, folly should be shunned because once it lays its hold, it does not let go. And fifthly, we must pray for a shepherd's heart for what we've been entrusted be faithful with what you have. Don't seek that which you haven't been given. Now, how do we do that? Right? Those are five points. I don't want to just send you out here just saying, now go do this better. How do you do this? 
The good news is this. Three things I'm just going to kind of land the plane with. How do you do this? The first is very simple. Trust that through Jesus you get a new heart. The first step is to bring your old heart to Jesus. I need a new heart, man. I need one that beats for you, one that lives for you. I need that new heart. Without that new heart, I can't do this. Right? So I'm not trying to send you out to try to do it better. you got to say, Jesus, change my heart. The second thing, even though we didn't really reference this a whole lot, but the second thing is that trust through the power of the Spirit, you can fear God. Now you'll get to the point, say, okay, Jesus, give me a new heart and give me a, a love and a fear for you so that all I would want to do is please you, God. That's it. I, I, that's it. I don't want to be a man pleaser. I want to please God. And then thirdly, trust that through the transforming power of God's word, you can love what God loves and hate what God hates. Here's what I mean by that. Now what I want to do is align my mind to the new heart that I've been given and allow my brain to be transformed so I start thinking and loving things that God loves and hating things that God hates and, and being changed through the power of the word and the spirit of God that works within us. So that's how I would challenge you. I think for us as a, as a church, we should do this. But I also think about us as parents. This is how we should be raising our children and that next generation so that they would be men and women of character and set free from the bondage that image gives to the world. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for this powerful proverb, set of proverbs. Jesus, we cannot do any of these things unless you change our hearts. We can't do any of these things unless our mind is renewed by the, the working of the word of God and your spirit just applying it to our weaknesses. So may we be attentive to your spirit. May we not resist him. May we embrace this truth. Be set free from the bondage that image brings. For those in this room that feel the emotional pressure of how they look, God, would you set them free? That is just so foolish. Allow them, through the power of your spirit, to reflect the character of Christ himself and find the joy and the satisfaction that's in, in that type of life.